Well, why don't we get started? Uh, so, rather than jumping into clinical material, we're going to jump before the throne of grace and bring this material, our learning, our attitudes, uh, to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow. Father in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name that you would be present through your Holy Spirit to edify what I have to say, what these participants have to reflect on, uh, their responses. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart and theirs be acceptable in your sight, that you might equip us to do things that you intend for us to do in Jesus' name around the world, now and for your glory, and just in Jesus' name, amen. The one attendee asked what the initials mean. Uh, so, you know, MD, MPH is a master's in public health, and specifically uh, training in global health, or what when I trained was called international health, uh, at Harvard or, or Hopkins or one of the schools uh, that does that well, it is recommended to understand concepts of how to administer but also do clinical care in resource-limited settings. Uh, to have somebody on the team that knows that or is thinking that way, I think it is, is useful. A tropical medicine uh, a little diploma from one of the schools around the world that does that gets you also the additional infectious disease exposure. I'm Dr. Steve Mary. I'm a family doc at Mayo Clinic. Yes, we have those there. In fact, we do the majority of the care for the families and the uh, physicians and the staff that work at Mayo Clinic. Uh, I'm involved as a director of the Mayo International Health Program that does educational rotations for our residents and fellows and medical students and MSA uh, School of Health Sciences students in the three sites uh, across the U.S. and involved in directing how Mayo Clinic does global health among the underserved. We're going to talk today about uh, chronic diseases, not just how we treat chronic diseases, but how we diagnose chronic disease and do preventative care, i.e. screening, in a rational, cost-effective way. We're going to look specifically at some diseases, hypertension, type 2, type 1 diabetes, and coronary artery disease, and pregnancy. And we're going to think about how we can treat those things in a rational, cost-effective way. Now, who here has been in this situation before, where you walk in one morning to your hospital, the mission hospital, and the nurse says, by the way, doctor, the family of the, in the, the child in bed two wants to go home. They're out of money. Who's been there? Who's felt that pain? Will you live there with me for a second? So this is going to happen to you if you work in a rural or even an urban mission hospital. It's, it's going to happen, and it will rip your heart out because you knew, you know, that if you had those resources, you could cure that child, and yet the parent won't allow you to. And your first reaction will be anger because it's an unjust world and because children die when they shouldn't have to die. Uh, but if you leave your heart there instead of coming full circle with me this hour, then I would submit to you that you haven't really examined that full, that, that full system. You haven't thought this through, so please stay with me in this. Or you go in one day and the family of the elderly woman that came in with a stroke, they say, the nurse says, uh, Dr. Mary, uh, Mrs. Jones, 
in bed four. Her family is saying she's going to die anyway. They'd like to take her home. <coughs> the same sorts of feelings rise of anger. Why? Why won't they stay and let me rehabilitate her so that she can reach her full potential as a stroke victim? Um, or you simply see someone with hypertension and you say, should I even treat it? I mean, got all these other needs. People are dying, coming in with arms cut off. I don't have enough resources to even try to take care of those. What about this person with mild hypertension? How do you decide what to treat, with what, when, and how? That's what this is all about. Underlying all of this is a whole lot, a whole lot of, of additional musings. So which of you, yes, I do want you to raise your hands, would withhold treatment for a life-threatening illness if you had the medication to treat it? Which of you would withhold treatment for a life-threatening two-bold people uh, illness if you had the medication to treat it? Uh, I, I heard a maybe. Okay, it depends. I haven't told you what it is, and I haven't given you the full scenario. So all of you who are clinicians or practitioners, and I do need that on, don't I? Oh, my, I'm sorry. Sure. We'll recognize that behind that question, there's a lot of other missing information. So who here, if you if you saw a patient with terminal cancer who was 95 years old, and yet you had the medication to treat the terminal cancer, would withhold the therapy for that patient? Okay, I'm getting a few more hands raised here. So it depends. It depends on a lot of things. But why Why are you saying you would withhold it for the 95 year Why did that change that scenario? What changed in that scene? More chance of harm, lower chance of benefit, yes. Limited resources. Limited resources, perhaps if you're in that setting, not probably here in the U.S. What else? Quality of life. So that whole rubric of, of the balancing of the harms with, with the uh, benefit. What else? Well, that's enough. Okay, so it depends. It's, it's that cost-benefit ratio. And the same thing applies over there. Right? So now you have a child with renal failure. Yes, you can put them on dialysis because you're at Tenwick. I don't know. Is anyone here from Tenwick? Do you have dialysis machines at Tenwick? I think you do. You don't. Okay. Okay. Peritoneal dialysis, yes. Right? Probably could do it. Ah, you could rig it up. Come on. Worse yet, he's in, he's, he's got something else. He's got cardiac failure from a viral cardiomyopathy, and Russ White wants to do transplant for it. Okay, how do you make that decision? Should you? It depends. That's the right answer. Um, I was saying that there's musings behind all this, okay? And I'm not saying I understand all those musings fully. They challenge each one of us, and if we don't go there in our thinking and we react to it with antibodies rather than examining the situation, I think we're going to do ourselves and our practices and our patients a real disservice. Um, 
What did Jesus do? Matthew 9:35 to 38 went through all the towns and villages of Galilee, teaching and preaching and healing every kind of disease. Or was it NIV every disease? And so you're left with the same tension. Well, was it every disease? Did he cure everybody in Galilee while he did his Galilean ministry? Every single person got well, and then they died again. Does God put life on earth as the highest good? Does he? Is is death the ultimate evil? He killed whole villages. So death is the result of sin, and it's the punishment, it's the penalty we pay. But death for you and I is an entry into eternal life. It's life with our Savior for to live as Christ but die as gain. So certainly death isn't the worst possible thing. So we need to think about these things before we react and say, let's treat everything, everyone, with everything possible, just like we would treat them here. And that's where I'm starting today's talk from. And this becomes very practical when we're then talking about what time of night should the Mission Hospital Clinic close? Because there's still people waiting there in the waiting room, and there's still patients that need surgery on the waiting list of six months, some of which will die while they wait for that surgery. Their hernias will incarcerate, strangulate, and they will die because we didn't have the capacity. So what time do we shut the hospital? This is all in the same sense, okay? I think as Christians, American Christians, particularly living in an age of unlimited resources, relatively speaking, or just coming out of it, we need to think about these things before we go there and start treating. Medical missionaries behaving badly. This is deprecative, yes. Following U.S. treatment protocols, disregarding the Ministry of Health treatment guidelines, doing what they did in the U.S. because they want everyone to be treated just like they were here over there. Treating chronic diseases regardless of the cost, expensive testing, monitoring, medications, and rechecks. What I'm proposing today is that in order to do cost-effective care, we best look at the whole care process, from care access, from prevention to evaluation, including screening, to treatment, to follow-up, and include all of that cost, all of the harms, with the benefits, coupled with compassion, and that will produce cost-effective care. The disclaimer here is that I'm not an, uh, an economist, and my goal is to present really practical concepts and tools that are patient-centric. So that if we do less testing, less technology, the essentials, less specialists, less physician-driven, more primary care and public health-driven, avoiding fertility, futility, and give people access in every country and every place to primary health care, a tribute to Barbara Starfield's work from Hopkins, now deceased, then we will have cost-effective health care. And this requires an analysis of the so-called care delivery value chain because we as clinicians often don't do that. We often start with the patient sitting in front of us and we say they have disease X and disease X you use treatment Y and it's a, it's a one-on-one process and we take care of it and they go out the door and the next patient comes in. 
I'm proposing that instead we need to follow that whole thinking all the way through the start when the disease of hypertension began from, from being obese, from being inactive, from drinking alcohol, from eating too much salt, from not eating a Mediterranean or fruits and vegetable diet, to then leading through to figuring out if they have it or if that was just white coat or whatever and staging it and then delaying disease progression as much as we can with exercise and healthy diet and then initiating therapy following up on all that and then managing their deterioration. This is the care delivery value chain of Harvard Business School model for how to figure out what is the cost in cost-effectiveness analysis. Cost-effectiveness analysis searches for best buys. So certainly uh, smoking cessation, I mean, when I've got a hypertensive sitting in front of me with mild hypertension uh, I'm, who's a smoker, I don't really want to focus on the hypertension. I want to focus on the smoking. I mean, that's where the massive Framingham risk comes from, right? Get rid of that first, and then let's work on the other stuff. Now, in an age of unlimited resources here, we often are doing all of it simultaneously. Over there, you don't have that luxury, and you shouldn't, therefore, is my suggestion. Cost-effectiveness analysis expresses decisions in terms of cost per benefit. Usually those are U.S. dollars per disability adjusted life years. In other words, uh, a life year gained, a year of life gained adjusted for disability. And that's a broad adjustment, but it helps to sort of give us a sense of what's fair. Because if you live a year of life, but you're in a wheelchair or in a nursing home, uh, gorked, you really, that's not, that's not like a full year of life if I just spent X number of dollars to get that product, cold, clean analysis. So it requires clear knowledge or at least an informed guess about the value of what we do, which we often don't carry as physicians around in our pockets or nurses. And we need, we need that. We need some sense of that. So what's a reasonable cost? The options here are how much is the patient willing to pay for it? Okay, And I would submit to you that most of what goes on in mission hospitals around the world is that. Patient Mrs. Smith needs an antihypertensive because she has hypertensive. I prescribe the medication, the initial labs, uh, and tell her to come back in six months to get refills to check up. And she gets to the pharmacy and says, I don't have the medicine, so she doesn't get it. That's how it's decided. I'm suggesting today that you need to help make that decision. Because if we come back to the patient who ran out of money, the little child there lying in the bed ill, you've treated them to the point of them having no money left. You're now taking the position of forcing that family, the dad often, to feel like a complete schmuck because he doesn't have enough money to rescue his child from a fatal illness that you're saying implicitly, if you had the money, if you were a harder worker, if you had done something more with your life, you would be able to save your child, but looks like you can't. And you're putting all of that ethical weight on him rather than sharing it in a shared decision-making. What is one disability life year worth? So the WHO has tried to come up with a, a construct. And the, the general construct 
there are multiple, is three times the gross national product of the country. And I'm suggesting that a good construct would be, rather than the gross national product, which averages in a lot of rich people, a few rich people with a lot of poor people, is three times the per capita income uh, of that particular family. So if you take that family and divide them by the number in the family, and dad's making $300 a year, that's their disposable household income, and there's 10 of them in the family, then guess what? They've got about $30 a person to spend on treating a disease, and three times the per capita income for that family is $90. So if whatever you're doing does not give them one disability life year for $90, according to the WHO, in that same kind of construct, it's not cost effective. Wow, that was a lot. Did that seem semi-clear? Are you holding with me? You're trying to figure out how can I get into the economy of that family and decide if this treatment is worthwhile or not? Yes. So, uh, like in that example, $90 of one year's treatment of a chronic disease? $90 for one, if $90 can give me one disability adjusted life year, then I would suggest for that family making $300 a year, it's worth it. Now, maybe with that child, depends what they had, right? I mean, if that was a child with, say, a typhoid perforation, I can zip open that abdomen, fix it, zip it shut, kid lives, they spend 50 bucks. Wow, that's a no-brainer. Yes, surgery is usually a very good buy. But if it's a chronic disease, say it's a 40-year-old with mild hypertension, now they're spending $90 a year for something that doesn't even give them close to a disability-adjusted life year of benefit, and it's a very inefficient treatment. And that's what we're going to look at in some of these examples before you fall asleep, and we'll get there. So here's the case number one. We've got a hypertensive Ghanaian farmer. He walks in. He's come from a couple hours away because he, he has this rash on his feet that he can't get better. That's not what you end up finding as significant. In fact, he has some mild hypertension, right? Non-smoker, mildly obese guy, and, of course, he has his athlete's foot problem. Otherwise, well. So what do you do for him? Do you recommend a lifestyle change, blood pressure checks by a village health worker? You treat his tinea pedis, and he returns if he's consistently hypertensive. Or do you, choice B, do A, but then you start some hydrochlorothiazide right now. C, you do that, but you also do some labs, potassium, creatinine, glucose, UA, CBC, ECG, a calcium if you were here. Would you do that? Or you go the full enchilada and you check his cholesterol and you'd initiate a statin and some aspirin and even check if that glucose is elevated so you can start some metformin. How do you decide? Where do you go with this? This is reality. This is daily practice in your rural mission hospital. So who wants to do A and stop there? Why don't we say who wants to do A? Because these are all set up for being, so you all want to do A. Does, that, does anyone not want to even do A? Yes, what would you like to do? Uh, I think B 
cheap? Hydrochlorothiazide is dirt cheap. Do you want to figure out if he's truly hypertensive before you start it? That's where I'm going with A. And lifestyle changes turn out to be a best buy. They're really cheap, especially if done in, like, mass media. And you want to get rid of his athlete's foot. Come on, have some compassion. Get rid of his athlete's foot. <laughs> right, so you want to find out if it's really a hypertensive, because maybe he's hypertensive because he's never been to a mission hospital. Um, maybe your chaplain was witnessing to him and he's been convicted. He's, he's got a bit of hypertension. Uh, so you want to be sure that it is he is hypertensive before you start the medicine, right? You do, yeah. Um, but who wants to then go B, because now he's going back to the village and he has no access necessarily to medications. Let's get the hydrochlorothiazide going. Okay, yep, she wants to do it. Anyone else? Yep, maybe. Who wants to do some labs before you get there? And now I've lost everyone because you know where I'm going with this talk. <laughs> but in fact, I'm going to show you that you probably should at least do one lab. Sorry, that's not an option up there. And uh, who wants to check his cholesterol and start a statin? I mean, a lot of you are on statins. Why don't we want, you want, you don't want, you want this patient over there to get a statin? Isn't that fair? Isn't that just? Where's the equity in that? Statins? Cholesterols? Come on, people my age. Okay. So JNC7 says normal blood pressure is that. Prehypertension is that. You know this. Once you hit 140 over 90, it's time to do something. And, uh, and if you're a person with chronic kidney disease a little earlier, hypertension in Africa is very common. Nearly 20% of people, rural and urban, have in this Tanzania study are hypertensive, and yet, as you see here, a minor percentage, 10%, are being treated. Uh, and the percent that's controlled, oh, my heavens, almost none. Should we treat mild hypertension? Well, if it's greater than 140 over 90, even if there's no risk factors, huh, that's mild hypertension, no risk factors. Okay, so what, what's, the, what's the whole cost-effectiveness equation here? Well, number needed to treat for one year is 700. I treat 700 people like this guy with mild hypertension. So say you found out he really has mild hypertension from the village health worker. Now I've got to treat 700 people just like him before one avoids an MI or a stroke. I mean, MIs or strokes are bad, but if it takes 700, is that effective use of resources? So here's, the, here's the, the analysis. So I think I can do that for 50 bucks a year. In some countries, you can't do it that cheap. But you probably can in places I've worked, in Guinea, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, Uganda. So I think if I get that patient in and I diagnose mild hypertension, I, I'm sure he's got it, and, and then I give him a year's worth of hydrochlorothiazide after I check a creatinine, because I want to make sure he's not in kidney failure. But I'm not going to check anything else. I'm going to assume his potassium is fine, the CBC is fine, his calcium I can't check it anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, usually can't get his cholesterol, so it doesn't matter. Might check a glucose, because that changes risk factors. Okay, if it's cheap enough. Say I can do it for 50 bucks a year, but it takes 700 of him to save a life. 
That means it costs $35,000 to save a life of people just like him. And if this guy is, say, 55, and so maybe he's going to die in about 10 years, now I've got to divide that by 10. $35,000 to save his life or others, one person like that. <coughs> to save 10 years of life. So 35000 divided by 10, $3,500, <coughs> I do need that water, um, is what it's going to cost to save uh, a disability-adjusted life year. Is this guy consenting to that kind of cost? You didn't give him a chance to consent. You just treated him. That's the point. We need to do shared decision-making in a rapid, informed way where the patient is getting what they think they're getting. Because when you give them hydrochlorothiazide after diagnosing hypertension, telling him the rigmarole about how this can cause strokes and heart attacks, he thinks he's going to have it 100% probability, right? So he walks out of there thinking, you've just said, if you don't take this pill, you're going to die, rather than you have a 1 in 700 chance of dying, right? <clears throat> And the family then looks at that and says, well, we can't live without dad, the breadwinner, so it's worth it. Whatever it costs, we buy it, right? And that's not true. We're implicitly lying to our patients. We need to give this kind of information to them efficiently, uh, but truthfully. Otherwise, that's the worst kind of paternalism and I would submit that's not ethical treatment. Who wants to challenge that? Oh, you will in a minute, believe me. Okay. <clears throat> so this is initial treatment of hypertension. It looks something like that. Okay, take a history and exam. You do as few labs as possible. Okay, he's not polyuric, polydipsic, so I don't do a fasting blood sugar. If he is, I do, because I want to know. That's changes risk. And then I make a decision. Does he have access to care to follow up? Can he afford the meds? What's his household income? I kind of get a gestalt of that. What's his comorbidities? I hear brewies. He's had an MI. I can tell that. He's, been, he's got some mild failure. Um, then I'm going to change what I do. And, uh, and that's then full informed consent risk-based treatment. Am I saying that life isn't worth whatever? No. No. This is normal in U.S. practice too, right? I mean, you see a patient with a migraine, you don't get an MRI on every single patient with a migraine. Sometime you're going to miss a brain tumor, even with a normal neuro exam. It's not 100% sensitive. It's 98.5 or something, right? Same with chest pain admissions. You admit every, 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 every person with chest pain, you know you're going to miss one, one and a half percent. It's the way it is in EMED. You examine the total cost per benefit, and then you figure out where the money is coming from. And here's the issue, because when dad gets the treatment and all the household disposable income is going to dad's hypertension, it's not going to mom and her pregnancy. So she's not getting her iron and her TT2 for tetanus, and she's not getting her, her, her SP for, for preventing malaria. And the babies are suffering and the children are suffering because they're not getting nutritive meals because the money has gone to dad's hypertension because otherwise he thought he would die. Oh my. Hidden in this whole thing is the very dirty word rationing, right? 
that's what you think that I'm going towards. I'm submitting to you this is ethical practice. We need, we need to give this kind of informed consent to our patients. So how do you do this? You choose meds wisely. You start with cheap stuff with few side effects, and you give them lots of it because in that cost-value chain, you need to keep the cost way down. If you're coming, they're coming back in a month, then they have to get the taxi for 10 bucks, stay overnight for 5 bucks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've just way jacked up the cost of care. So you need to do this in that, with that whole cost value analysis from the start to the end of what's going on. This isn't a plop in for a, you know, a, a two week uh, short term mission, put someone on antihypertensives for three months and think you're doing good because you're not. Risk stratification. So we know from JNC7, adapted from the WHO guidelines here, that a low-risk patient, 140 over 90 to 160 over 100, with with no other risk factors, is that 1 in 700. They're low risk. I'm submitting to you that in a low-income country, they shouldn't be treated. Follow them, maybe sometime, have them come back in three years, see how they're doing, but they shouldn't be treated except by modification of risk factors, weight loss, exercise, low-salt diet, etc. If they're into that moderate area, they should be, and we'll look at the value of that. If they're very high risk, it's a no-brainer. So if you move up into the, into the 160 uh, group and above, grade 2 hypertension, now the numbers needed to treat are about 100 for a, a, preventing an event. 100 people treated to prevent one MI or, or stroke per year. If you go up to the next grade three, then you're getting way down there into the 20 people to treat to prevent one event. So it's quite cost effective. Here's this second group, grade two hypertension, the data from the Lancet. Now, hypertension is a bad disease in Africa. It's the cause of a lot of congestive failure. In fact, the top cause of congestive failure. So it's not benign. Untreated hypertension is responsible for a lot of secondary problems. But you can treat it with things other than pills. Focus on diet, on exercise. These aren't minimally effective. They're hugely effective. Look at the benefit from weight reduction, 5 to 20 millimeters of mercury per 10-pound weight loss, a DASH or Mediterranean diet, 8 to 14 millimeters of mercury from all the magnesium or weight loss or whatever it's doing uh, to to help the person's metabolism, dietary sodium reduction, a minimally effective but useful for some, limiting alcohol, getting them active. That's where you start. And if you need to then treat, you use cheap stuff like a thiazide, because it works well, and in all hat, all of remember the all hat study from way back, all the meds had the same benefit, but but chlorothaladone, the thiazide diuretic, had uh, a bit more. So, so here's an, uh, a uh, WHO assisted analysis, horribly busy slide, of of doing this kind of analysis in Vietnam. Okay. And there's a group called WHO Choice. I'll show you the website. And they use a software tool called One Health Tool. And 
by doing this cost-effectiveness analysis, they're able to show down in, so what I have circled in the lower left there is uh, a group of things that are very, very, very cost-effective. Now, the numbers to the left are not U.S. dollars. These are Vietnamese dong. But uh, so there's no equivalency here. All of that to show that these are highly cost-effective. And what's there circled on that list of things that are highly cost-effective? Okay, I've got to go here to read. It's, it's the SALT campaign. It's a smoking cessation campaign. It's a mass media combination campaign of those two things. Those are highly cost-effective. And then it's also treatment of systolic blood pressure greater than 160. So that falls into the really good buy. But treating mild hypertension, treating cholesterol, treating the two together ends up getting way up there into the enormously cost-inefficient group. And there's the two websites. Now, the conclusion here is that you can't practice there just like you do here. This doesn't mean you can't use what you learned here because everything I just told you all of you had some sense of that. You just need to pay attention to that sense. And if you're still a student, you need to focus on that stuff because it turns out to be extraordinarily important as you put it into practice over there and you start to develop tools. Easier than that is that often neglected is that every country has a treatment diagnosis and treatment guidelines manual. WHOs help them produce it. Would you please get that and use it in your mission hospital? We Westerners walk in, riding in on our white horses, and we think, heavens, we certainly know how to treat hypertension. Maybe not malaria, but doggone it, we know how to treat hypertension better than these nationals because that's a U.S. disease. But that's why those manuals were written. They're to help us figure out in this context of a very low-income country, what's the priorities? Should I be screening for breast cancer? Well, probably not. Should I be screening for cervical cancer, number one cause of death in women in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa? Well, yes, but not with pap smears, because now you're into those very, very high cost for low benefit. Maybe doing visual visualization under acetic acid, yeah, that's cost-effective. That's why those manuals were written. Okay, and then begin to use those in all humility. So a boy comes in to your hospital with DKA. It's from a village that has no electricity or running water to his home. Family lives on less than $2 a day. You're the medical director. Father comes to you and wants to discharge his son home to die. You would, A, become angry and give dad your man-up pep talk. Okay, that's what I did once. So uh, you will find anger rise in your heart because you know you could save the child. Why does this dad not understand that this child can live and I can save their life? You will find the funds for home monitoring and insulin administration and you will make sure all that money gets to that home so this child can live. Maybe try that with no electricity. So now we've got all these other barriers. How long will that child live? 
Have you in fact taken the ethical weight and transferred it from your own shoulders to the Father? You'll ask the chaplain to share the gospel with the father and son and discharge him home per the father's wishes because this child has a terminal illness. Maybe. You'll keep him hospitalized and just sort of delay the whole story. I don't know what to do, but I sure can't handle that today. So you'll provide continued monitoring, insulin until he's stable, and you'll think about it later. (laughs) Been there, done that. Yep. Honesty. So, you know, this is reality, folks. Type 1 diabetes in low-income countries is a fatal disease. Life expectancy less than a year. Annual treatment costs are massive. They're way beyond what a family can afford. And if there's no electricity, if they have no access to these things, the child isn't going to live. You're delaying inevitable death. People that train in sub-Saharan Africa and Haiti, where one of our Mayo teams went down after Katrina, they came back. We had this big discussion presentation. And then there was this outcry of rage as the pharmacist that had led the pharmacy part of the trip explained how the national doctors didn't want to give insulin to type 1 diabetics. They didn't even know how to run it, and and they didn't even have it available in their hospital. And what what a cause for, for international outcry this was, and she was very passionate about this. Uh, this is a normal reaction, but the fact is, if you look at the availability of, of insulin in these places, it's much less than 10% of type 1 diabetics uh, can find treatment, even in some of the most well-resourced countries. It just isn't going to happen. And, uh, and so that's my pause for a brief debrief, is because by now... Hopefully, you're feeling that difficult decision-making and wanting to either get away from it or take it on. And would you please take it on? This is what shared decision-making and medical missionaries behaving well looks like, is taking on that weight and taking that dad who realizes before you that this kid is going to die. No way he can sustain that. Someone already talked to him about kid's going to need to be on insulin. These injections you see the nurses giving all day long, they're going to need to be done the rest of this kid's life. He's already figured it out. Before you figured it out, he was already there. He's done the analysis and said, this child of mine is going to die. And then you come to him with this anger, which I did, uh, in a very memorable case. These things stick with you. You remember them. They haunt you. And, and you kind of like yell at him. I mean, you know, I, I knew the thing that anger in an African context was the worst mortal sin, breaking community, all that. So I didn't yell. But I, I was angry. And I expressed my, my indignance about this injustice and that this kid needed to be treated if he was going to live and that he needed to come up with the money to pay for that insulin so that his child could live. Wow. Now I just dug a deeper hole for his heart. Uh, we need to take this on and come around him and say, this is an awful disease, just like we would do with a 95-year-old with a terminal cancer, because that's what it is. And then compassionately share Christ with that dad and with that child. Pray with them, stay with them, be in contact with them, grieve with them, go to the funeral. It's easier for a type 2 diabetic. These decisions tend to be uh, a little more cerebral, you know, uh, so here comes a 70-year-old Togolese diabetic. He comes also from a village without electricity or water, lives on less than $2 a day. 
Uh, you do his exam, and uh, other than finding out that he's a diabetic, um, his exam is normal. Doesn't have any real secondary uh, disease. He's not hypertensive. He's not. Uh, doesn't have active uh, coronary artery disease. He's not blind. He's got feeling in his feet. Um, he doesn't uh, have something going on with his bladder, but he's got massive hyperglycemia. So what do you do? A, you advise weight loss exercise and an aspirin a day. Anyone want to do that? Dirt cheap. Don't have to do any monitoring. Public health stuff. Always good. The aspirin's really cheap. Okay. You add metformin, 2,000 milligrams a day. You'd do that here, wouldn't you? Um, should I do that there? That's why you're hesitating. Is that cost-effective, metformin? Is it cost-effective? How much monitoring does metformin need? None. You're all shaking your heads. You know that. Of course, you do it here. You even give them glucometers. Some of you do, right? It's because your nurses and doctor uh, educators have told you you're supposed to, and the ADH says you should. It's a really bad idea. But um, <laughs> Three studies have looked at that, found no correlation with improved glycemic control and frequent uh, self-glucose monitoring in patients on metformin. It's a bad idea, but we, we do things. Uh, you'll check a creatinine, and you'll do B if uh, that patient has a low enough creatinine. Yeah, you sure will. Thank you. Of course you will. You have to, kind of, because you're worried about metabolic acidosis, a little bit anyway. Uh, the French are less worried about it because it probably doesn't happen with metformin hardly at all. But, yeah, um, you might do that. And, uh, and then you'll check his cholesterol and statin if he's hyperlipidemic. Yeah, it's really pretty cost-ineffective. And, uh, and then you'll also add in an ACE um, and recommend home glucose monitoring and put those together because otherwise you might choose the ACE. No, ACEs are pretty cost ineffective unless they're already showing some renal disease. So that's, that's how to approach it. And in fact, that, that is the WHO guidelines for low-income countries is to do up through B. Uh, you add metformin after you do all the right stuff about getting, getting rid of uh, their cause of their metabolic syndrome. And Mr. Fitt's study tried to determine what percent of the, the whole thing was, uh, was due to X, Y, or Z, you know, and found that aspirin uh, really reduced deaths and, um, and that stopping smoking was really a good buy, really, really effective. Lipid lowering did a teeny-weeny bit, and blood pressure control um, did a, about the same or a little bit better. Quite, in fact, in more recent studies, blood pressure control is much more effective than lipid lowering. Um, residual was thought to be all due to glycemic con uh, hyperglycemia, so we control their glycemia, and then they will, uh, you know, become uh, healthy people and not die of heart attacks. And in fact, that's not panned out, has it? Uh, that was a that was a conclusion error. Uh, UK PDS two years later showed that, uh, in fact. It didn't matter much if you tightly controlled them. And we didn't listen to UK PDS. This was way, way back in 98. And uh, because, you know, that difference of one of the A1C made almost no difference in uh, blindness uh, or in renal failure and no significant def difference in death. Um, but we kept on doing it until the advanced trial showed that there really was no difference in cardiovascular death or stroke. Um, just less macroalbuminuria, more hypoglycemia and complications. And then we did the ACCORD trial, you know, same kind of thing. Increased all-cause mortality. We killed more people with tight control. Um, anyway, the big, big point is that if you're, t if you're treating a type 2 diabetic in a low-income country, 
you really don't need to focus on glycemic control. You need to focus on the cause of their type 2 diabetes. Get rid of the obesity. They need to be active and, uh, and correct any other bad behaviors like smoking. That's really where the payoff is. Uh, but metformin is a great buy. And uh, so here's the rational cardiovascular risk reduction uh, for anyone, particularly diabetics. And then a Mediterranean diet, right? Again, all those fruits and vegetables and whole grains make a difference. And some of them who are more wealthy have stopped eating that way. And so they're eating a Western diet with more meat, hopefully not bush meat. They're eating lots of uh, salt in their sauces over their rice that is now white rice and uh, has that high glycemic index of fast absorption and so on. So you get them back to a more traditional diet and they live longer. In terms of the cost of medications expressed in day's wages, it's, it's very high, but metformin still comes out to be a decent buy. And so this is, this is kind of the conclusion. I'll breeze by that. You can go to the slide set and find that. It's the one medication that decreases mortality in all the studies, right? No study ever showed that insulin decreased mortality in type 2 diabetes. We think it does for market hyperglycemia. That's why we're still using it. Um, but, in fact, metformin is the only one to actually show that. A little challenging thought for the day. Okay, so a pregnant Pakistani woman comes in. Uh, she's healthy, G2P1, uncomplicated last pregnancy, delivered by a traditional birth attendant, presents now for prenatal care at 12 weeks gestational age. What do you do? So you've got lots of babies. What percentage? Delivering out there by grandmas. Huge percent. Depends on your country. Kenya, far fewer. You know, you're probably still getting only 70% of women delivered by grandma. Uh, but lots of countries, it's 90% delivered by untrained TBAs. And, uh, and so our heart goes out. We want to save these babies. We want them delivered by somebody that has some training. So how do you, how do you balance that equation? Do you have them come in here monthly, increase to every two weeks at term? That's what I was trained in residency. Most of you are trained that way as well. Something like that. Recommend she again deliver at home with the TBA. Recommend care at the maternity in town. Or recommend... Uh, tetanus toxoid, two shots, get her tanked up, iron folate, sexide treated bed net, malaria prophylaxis, prenatal visit once each trimester with a midwife or physician and delivery with the midwife. Who wants to go A? See her, take care of her. B, deliver at home with the TBA. Work the first time, not a bad thought. Yeah. So she's relatively low risk. Sure. Yeah. Recommend care at the maternity in town? Maybe. Depends what the maternity in town's doing. If the maternity in town is doing D, then yes. Delivering at home if she also is doing all the things in D, because she still needs all those things. So you can make up E, which would be that. Put it all together. Absolutely. She's still getting her tetanus toxoid, or she did before, she's getting iron folate, she's sleeping under an insecticide-treated bed net, she's got her malaria prophylaxis regularly, she's getting some prenatal visits once a trimester. That's all you need. That's what all the data shows going way, way back. 
you know, this monthly monitoring thing that your benefit there is this little, little, little teeny bit. So once a trimester, you're good. Um, and that's going to make a difference. It's part of the Millennium Development Goals that we're not hitting in sub-Saharan Africa. We still have massive maternal mortality in so many countries. We've made progress, some progress, you know, almost halved maternal mortality in the last 20 years. Still a long ways to go. Again, in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, South Asia, many places around the world making tremendous progress in maternal mortality. Sub-Saharan Africa <coughs> lagging behind. And the big reason for that, the biggest reason for that is skilled birthing attendants, which my wife Svea pointed out, it's, it's misspelled there. It's supposed to be a T, but this is from the WHO. It's like they gave me the slide or I stole it. <laughs> Uh, so that's what makes the big difference. You've got to have somebody that knows what they're doing delivering that baby because when it goes wrong, sitting on the belly just ain't a great idea and reaching way up in multiple times for the next day or so when the baby's not coming is not real good for the health of the mother or child. Inadequate prenatal care uh, is, is the norm. And this is antenatal care, at least one visit uh, during the... the Proceeding, uh, yeah, for that for that last pregnancy, at least one visit. Um, so you can see that a a, a majority of people uh, up there in the first ones, there's somewhere 90, 70 to 90 percent uh, are getting uh, at least one visit, but uh, lots of countries aren't getting even one visit. And you need that so that you can do all those key things. Highly cost-effective, though, is public health. So let's talk about that. So what else? Here comes tool talk. This is, this is the tool man part. So here's where we can spend our money and make big advances. It's in public health. It's latrines and hand washing. It's clean water. It's sanitation. It's insecticide-treated bed nets. And, yes, you as physicians and nurses can do this. The last time I was, after we evacuated from Cote d'Ivoire, in the early 2000s with the war and we're in Togo for a year, I helped start a little, little uh, uh, one of the translators at the clinic started selling insecticide-treated bed nets on the side for people coming out of, the, uh, uh, out of cerebral malaria and, and other uh, kids discharging from the hospital so they could, they could get them for really cheap. Makes a huge difference. Uh, treatment of tuberculosis, really uh, the... The amount of TB in our country dramatically dropped way before antibiotic therapy, uh, a slide you would have seen years ago in, in your medical school training. We know these things. So we know, and here typhoid, you know, well before antibiotics, we were making dramatic strides in, um, in decreasing uh, typhoid. Primary health care, that's where the root of, uh, of really... Uh, getting to the root of the problem is if we can decrease smoking and decrease poor diet and decrease alcohol overuse and uh, decrease pollutants and firearms and sexual behavior uh, that is outside of marriage and motor vehicle mishaps, etc., then we decrease the leading causes of death. And when we focus on the leading causes of death as our primary focus as clinicians, we miss the big picture. That's self-evident. 
But we need to then take a step back when we see the patient with every single disease in a low-income country because the stuff on the right-hand side is always the most cost-effective. And some of it will be uh, uh, really all you can do for diabetes or heart disease, the really simple stuff. Diagnosis, limited labs, choose one or two like we did with that hypertension case. Very rarely do monitoring. Remember when Bruce Steffes joined me in Togo for eight months and we were under Bob Cropsey's uh, original uh, uh, advice, we weren't getting x-rays to look for free air and typhoid perforations. And we started because we thought, boy, we really would like to know that before we open the belly. And uh, it's cost prohibitive. So we, we open the belly and call it the Togo CT scan and, and um, save some money. If you've, got a, if you've got an acute abdomen, if you've got peritonitis, you've got to go in anyway. Careful exam, rare specialists. Uh, some of you have attended talks. We did, I did one last year on uh, IMCI. So the Integrated Management of Childhood Illness uh, is looking at how can I diagnose a disease with almost uh, no real uh, complexity. So a person with cough, increased respiratory rate, retractions, that's a pneumonia. You've made the diagnosis, you treat it, you don't get a chest x-ray, and many of you practice this way appropriately here in the U.S. as well. Cost-effective care means using also essential medications. Now, what are the essential meds? Who here is not, I won't ask it that way, who here is familiar with the WHO essential med list? So you need to know that term because that's why your, your resource-limited hospital uses what it does. So if you Google essential medications or essential medicines, no, it's medications, WHO, you can go to the PDF and it's about 30 pages of medicines that are chosen for being cost. Now, there's some things on there. There's OncMeds like methotrexate. Why? Because you can treat lots of stuff with methotrexate. You can treat you know, psoriasis and lupus and other autoimmune diseases with methotrexate, not just cancers. But there's some cancer meds on there too, like cyclophosphamide. Why? Because if you get a Burkitt's lymphoma, you can cure a Burkitt's lymphoma with cyclophosphamide, usually with some vincristin or some, some, you know, some other adjunctive meds too. But these are the essential med lists, and that's what you're going to buy for your hospital. You're going to efficiently treat chronic diseases. That was the focus of most of this talk. You're going to balance that number needed to treat to benefit with the number needed to treat to harm. Do a gestalt of that mental math, and you're going to avoid futility of care and end-of-life issues. Uh, No treatment for diseases that aren't diseases. So colds don't get treated. Otitis media doesn't get treated unless they're pussed out for days. Conjunctivitis doesn't get treated. Why? Because just like the the Dutch parliament decided it's going to go away anyway, you shouldn't be treating it unless the really pussy, thick, gooey stuff. Sinusitis, you know, that's a it's going to get better on its own. Bronchitis, you don't need antibiotics for that. So don't waste your money. Uh, you give INDs for even MRSA, and you don't use antibiotics unless there's cellulitis. Studies UCSF clearly show you don't need antibiotics if there's not cellulitis around a MRSA abscess. No expensive junk. You're just doing what's cost-effective. And the benefits of the responsible use of these medications have been looked at thoroughly uh, by uh, 
the world organ the WHO and and here's uh, something from a congress of um, of uh, ministers of health that met in the in the Netherlands um, skip that actually here so there's the essential med list go there look at those things and then if you're at a resource limited hospital you're going to buy them from IDA IDA is a uh, drug company in Holland that that sells they're the largest wholesaler of uh, essential meds and uh, so they supply most mission hospitals because it's dirt cheap medication and then task shifting so you're going to use people efficiently in your hospital your technicians are doing the hernias and c-sections so they offset the need for the surgeon to do them uh, in this rubric here from uh, PLS Med 2009, Chu and talked about what the surgeon should be doing, what the generalist or family doc should be doing, what the community health worker should be doing. It's passing down and sharing everyone working at the top of their licensure. If we don't do that, we're not going to cure, we're not going to meet the massive surgical need in Africa, in rural Asia. We need to be sharing these tasks and, uh, and the family docs need to be doing a large amount of the emergency surgery under the tutelage and the supervision of at least a regionally placed general surgeon. Efficient treatment of chronic diseases, then is the final uh, one, balancing the mental math. Uh, here's a nice little uh, article that was just recently in The Lancet, and it's evidence-based cancer screening recommendations for Thailand. Now, Thailand has become a middle-income country, but if you look at that, it'll get you started on thinking about this. You'll notice uh, on the left, terribly busy slide, that it talks about cervical cancer there. No screening, okay? So uh, visual uh, inspection under acetic acid, yeah, but not doing cytology uh, screening. In my slide here, I can't even read it. Um, but if you go to that, if you want to look on my handout, it'll, it'll get you started on thinking about those things. What, what things do I screen over there versus what I've been taught to screen here? And that's an important first step. Again, many of the national treatment guidelines have already done this for you. But again, come back with me. Don't just sort of walk in believing I know better and we're just going to start doing all these things because the country can't afford it. So look at the national treatment guidelines. Use a resource like the Oxford textbook or Dennis Palmer's edited uh, CMDA handbook to look at what's cost effective. And then talk to your national colleague because that's how they were trained. They know exactly how to do it. And believe them that that's the best way. Help patients to accept death, put their faith in Jesus, and die well using all of your resources, the hospital, uh, chaplains, hospice, pastors, community resources. We're going to skip the anginal farmer and drop right to this selected bibliography. If you're interested in this, everything that C.J. Murphy, Chris Murphy, Murray, excuse me, wrote uh, in the last 20 years is all about cost-effectiveness analysis. He led some of that at, at uh, WHO and at Harvard. There's a few other articles there. This website, WHO Choice, 
will kind of get you looking at some, and there's lots of links off there on how to figure out what to do in the country you're working in in terms of screening and treatment of chronic disease. Uh, this One Health tool, if you want to play with it, you can actually figure out what is cost-effective and do the, do the math. And this will result then in missionaries behaving well, following those country treatment protocols, focusing on prevention, treating patients cost-effectively, prepare before you go, you know, do some additional study. I have a little resource there. You can Google it. Steve's Essential Stuff for Global Health Preparation gives you lists of books and uh, resources, places for additional training uh, that I think are useful. A really cheap site is the Unite for Sight site. Um, that's Yale Ophthalmology Global Health, and all of their readings there are free. If you want to get your Global Health Certificate for free, uh, you can spend about nine hours reading uh, the stuff at the Global Health Practice Certificate site, and, uh, and you'll learn a whole lot, kind of from an ophthalmologist perspective, but it's, it's, it's one of the best sites out there for additional information. Um, good. I hope we've accomplished these learning objectives, and uh, although I've taken a lot of time to do a whole lot of talking, uh, I'd like to entertain questions. Please. Is there a website for my slides? Yes, they're on, on the uh, Global Health Missions, Global Missions Health Conference uh, website, and uh, I'll download the new edition. There's a few extra uh, number of good ones. Yep. Can you comment on the different tropical medicine courses? I know there's one at WVU, there's one at Hopkins. Do you know kind of the lay of the land is? Yeah, so uh, some of them have a clinical component. The one in London has a clinical component. There's a hospital hospital for tropical diseases. When I was there, we went there once a week to see patients. That's why I did London. It was also the oldest school in the world so for tropical medicine. So there's a lot of history, and it's fun to live in London for three months. But, yeah, you can the West Virginia one, you know, many of our CMDA members uh, are familiar with that one, have uh, either presently or previously went through it or taught in it. Great school, Tulane, great school, uh, Liverpool, much more. Uh, Phil Fisher did the Liverpool one. It was much more of a discussion format. Uh, there's one in Bangkok, um, so on. Yeah, there's various places. Yes? Is related to? Relating to diet? Yes. So I work a lot in Haiti, where, where the statistics show that the average patient eats three meals a week. How do you tell a person like that that to change their diet? Yeah, good, good question. So how do you change? tell a person who's only able to afford three meals a week in Haiti uh, to change their diet? Yeah, I sure wouldn't either. Um, I think, you know, you're, you're in such massive resource limitation there. Again, then you're, you're, I think in my construct, I would suggest using the family disposable income as a much better guide for what should be recommended. You know, and then you're treating acute infectious disease, you're vaccinating, you're trying to get them more food, you're ensuring sanitation to prevent another cholera outbreak, et cetera, and not looking at treating chronic diseases because you're so far down on the income system that all this stuff is going to be cost ineffective in terms of chronic disease prevention and treatment. So then what would your recommendation be for hypertension, which is prevalent 
It's very prevalent, and the biggest admission, and I sent one of my residents from Mayo was down at, at Mirabile uh, for a rotation, and, you know, they were admitting tons of, it was the biggest reason for uh, admission to their ER was stroke. What do you do? Well, you try and get more food so they can eat more fruits and vegetables. The country has to stabilize from uh, the earthquake. They've got to get more, more uh, food security in the homes so that you can start eating healthy. Um, yeah, I think, but it's still public health. You're trying to, you know, this is, there's still relief work to do down there, even though it should be development this many years after the earthquake. The relationship with not enough water uh, could, could be, could be, yeah, probably it's, yeah, complex factors. Yes? To kind of prepare. Exactly. Yeah. So the question is, working at a resource unlimited institution here in the U.S. in training, how do you prepare to work in a resource limited institution? And that's exactly the right question. And what you need to do, I would suggest, all through your training is challenge your precepting physicians with that question. I'm planning to work in a resource limited area in the world. Do you think this would really be beneficial there? Or give me some, you know, so doctor... Uh, okay, we're going to do this MRI of the head in this patient with, some, with, a, with a migraine. What's, what's the cost-benefit of that? Give me some idea of how many patients I'm going to have to do that on before I find one that has a brain tumor. Um, and then start thinking, okay, so I'm over there, you know, and I, I can't even get a CT scan. Uh, what am I going to do? I mean, it, it helps you to know those kind of things. Now, of course, that's an absurd example because you can't even get a CT scan when they, you know, you think they have a, a bleed and so on, and you're going to have to do burr holes like Hippocrates, Hippocrates did just on neuroanatomy. But Hippocrates did it 2,000 years ago, so you can too. You know, that's primary surgery. You get out the drill and, you know, he can't move this side after the motor vehicle accident, and so you put the hole in, open up primary surgery and drill the brew hole and suck out the clot. Yeah? Comment just to always be looking into and being challenged by preceptors to figure out what the costs are. Because oftentimes we don't know, right? You order a bunch of things, you don't have a clue what it costs. Now, of course, over there it's cheaper. It is cheaper. So, you know, it might be four bucks for an X-ray or one dollar for a for a chem analysis like a creatinine. I mean, that's that was kind of the that's about the right price. Um, but you still got to factor that in. If you're making less than two dollars a day in a family of ten, you know, or seven, well, that's a lot of money. Others, please. What about in situations where you're going on a trip and the trip, the short-term trip, has brought a lot of resources? Is this situation where checking the creatinine 
So a short-term trip where you've brought a lot of resources, would it be worth checking your creatinine? And again, I think checking your creatinine is usually a pretty good idea for hypertension before you start treatment. But I would suggest that if you're doing or being part of short-term trips, that you ask the short-term trip organizer how this is integrated with the ongoing chronic care of patients in that location. How is it integrated into the Ministry of Health vision for bringing up the country's health broadly? Uh, how is it related to an ongoing uh, medical mission clinic or work there? And if it isn't, and you're just plopping into some area and then exiting out, it's what we deprecatively call hit-and-run missions. I don't think it should be happening. So, um, and uh, I, I'm not in a, a majority in that position because this is what a majority of short-term missions is presently. But I would challenge you to think about whether that's truly doing good and you're really bringing health and healing in Jesus' name, or you're just kind of getting a good you know, feel about kind of doing something. Not speak, speaking to you specifically, I'm saying in general, this is what's going on in the church presently. And so the better way is if you're going to go there, by George, set up a clinic. Have a national or a missionary expat staff it all the time. Then you're doing good. Then you're raising capacity, training nationals, so then they're staffing it. Now you're building a health system. That's really good. But just dropping in, throwing some meds and plopping out, even if you're well-resourced, then it sets up a whole different system there in the country. You're the competing thing with the place down the road. How would you feel if you were the national doc who didn't usually treat that disease? These Americans came. They plopped in. They treated that disease. They looked really nice, but then they're gone, and the patients have to then come to that center to get their continuing treatment. Not a great, not a great deal. So is there a way for short-term teams to support? Uh, there is a way for short-term teams to support what exists there, and that's exactly what every short-term trip leader needs to ask before they do it. And that would, if, if they read even that stuff at Unite for Sight, a totally secular site, just read that stuff. Think about what it's like to really build capacity in a low-income country, and those principles are key. So then you go in there and you work with what the existing health system. Find you know, who there is, is the, where's the church working? The church has got people working there in clinics and hospitals. Well, join what God's already doing. Build capacity in that system, and then the kingdom is growing. Yes, we're going to have to stop in a second, but yes. Hi, just also a comment in response to um, the question about short-term missions. Uh, my wife and I have been working on the Thai Burma border, um, and we've worked with a, a, jungle, a, school, a jungle school of medicine inside Burma that trains medics for two years, and one of the things that we really love is when doctors come in for a short term to do a training. Um, and, you know, we really rely on those. And, and we have doctors that will come in uh, maybe once a year, once every couple of years for a few weeks and, and do a training that is a, a real worth the value. So a shout-out to all of you who can come to these places like the Thai Burma border uh, where they're training medics and help with that training. That's a great model of capacity building is education. Education of, of national physicians, techs, uh, allied health personnel is almost always a massively good buy and a super good idea. And again, if you're doing it with the national church, 
maybe not there if there's not a national church. If you're doing it with the national church, uh, then the kingdom is going to grow. Thank you all for uh, your attention. Have a good rest of the day.